And welcome to the Generations Broadcast. Kevin Swanson, your host with you as well, Steve Vaughn. And I want to contrast Russia and America just for a second, uh, one more time, because I really think that uh, we as a nation need to humble ourselves and realize that we have our sins and the Russians have theirs. And as we consider ourselves sometimes to be, I don't know, opponents, nation against nation, we as Christians need to stop and say, now, wait a minute. They have their sins, but we've got ours too. And I think this is the first place to stay when considering the differences between our respective nations. And certainly we need to humble ourselves as we consider these differences. So Russian lawmakers are considering a law which would ban all Russian adoptions to most Western nations, including the U.S. Why? Here's why. The legislation would not allow adoptions to citizens of countries where sex changes are allowed. To which you would wow. say, Steve, amen. <laughs> amen. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, I guess you would say if they were fair, they would probably want to look for people who had Christian values, a Christian world and life view that wouldn't allow for this radical revolutionary form of opposing God's created genders. And uh, yet, you know, I mean, it's governments and governments, you know, they, they're not that specific on issues they usually operate with you know large uh, swaths of uh, public policy statements that could you know help some but hurt others and uh, that's the sort of thing that's developing here for russian adoptions and i wonder sometimes again if russians are more moral than we are the russians have their sins and americans have theirs now historically it was the bolsheviks that were more revolutionary in the culture and in the social systems than we were at the front of the 20th century. You think of the Bolshevik revolution that introduced some of the first pro-abortion and pro-sodomy policies to the world in the 1970s, 1918s, and 1920s. Well, now Putin and others are backpedaling, but the Western world isn't backpedaling at all. The Western world is speeding, speeding up at 250 miles per hour over the cliff. Yeah. It's sad to watch as it happens because it it's, None of it makes sense, and yet they're still doing it. It just keeps, they just keep going forward. Just keep, you know, we, we don't care. We're going to drive over the cliff and we'll have fun until we fall, until we stop. There is a sense in which the Eastern world is holding on to more traditional definitions of family and human society than what we're seeing in the Western world. The Western world appears to be doing everything possible to undermine its social foundations, which ultimately is marriage and family. Now, the Soviets and the communists were big on that in the early part of the 20th century. But now it appears that the Western socialist nations are much more eager to destroy the family than what we find in the Eastern nations. In other words, they're bringing about even more destructive policies, domestic policies, than what we would find in these Eastern nations, which is interesting, which I take to mean that we are subjected to the judgments of Almighty God. And, and there's so little fear of God and so, many, so little recognition of what is happening to our society. And churches, pastors are not concerned about these issues and not pointing out that we are facing imminent destruction as a society, as a civilization. 
Now, of course, I'm sure many in our respective countries would consider these words to be too hyperbolic. But by the time a nation is denied the traditional marriage of a man and a woman, and by the time a nation has opened itself up to convenience uh, abortion and slaughtering some 60 to 70 percent of children conceived in the nation, and to the extent that we have opened our arms to every form of sexual perversion, it seems to me that there's almost nothing else we could do to further damage the foundations of human civilization. Everything is built on the family. You have good, strong families. That makes for strong communities, strong churches, which makes for a strong government. And uh, you destroy the foundation of the family, then everything else crumbles. And so we must get back to that strength of the family. And that might be what the Eastern nations are seeing, is that a strong family and strong family values brings about a stronger society in general. It's interesting as you consider the surveys recently, a survey conducted in 2019 found 47% of Russian respondents agreed that gays and lesbians should enjoy the same rights as other citizens. But another 2022 survey found that 74% of Russians said homosexuality should not be accepted by society, up from 60% in 2002 on the similar survey. So in other words, Russia is trending the other direction. Meanwhile, Ukraine has uh, got approximately 63.7% agreed that LGBT members should have equal rights. In other words, Ukraine is closer to the West and therefore more likely to take upon themselves the values or the worldview of the Western nations. And that's what we're seeing with Ukraine, whereas Russia is down around 47% or another survey, some 26% are accepted of homosexuality, uh, it's, what, 64% in Ukraine. So you see these vast differences developing between uh, Ukraine, more on the Western side, and Russia taking more of the Eastern side on the issue. So let's just be humble here for a moment. And what is to say that America is more righteous than Russia, or that Russia is more righteous than America? Sometimes I think we just need to humble ourselves, like Judah. You know, one of the most outstanding statements of the Old Testament always stands out to me. And it is Judah who is caught having sexual relations with his daughter-in-law. You remember mm-hmm. the story, don't you? Oh, yeah. Genesis and, 28, I think. And he's discovered, or she discovers him, and his response just was some of the most humble language I think I've ever read. And I, I, it just comes back to me again and again. It really needs to be the testimony of every person who comes to realize that they are a sinner themselves before God. And this is what he said concerning Tamar, because Tamar was the one who was acting as the prostitute. But listen to what Judah said. She has been more righteous than me. Mm -hmm. And at times I wonder if that's what we need to say as a nation, as we consider our own sins and compare them to Russia, China, or anybody else around the world. Be back with more in just a moment on the Generations Broadcast. Hello, my friends. For the last 15 years, the Generations team has produced a Christian curriculum specifically for families who want to give their children a God-centered, Bible-saturated, biblical worldview-based education. Our commitment is to restore the Christian faith, generational faith in an age where we are losing faith in this country and almost anywhere around the world where Christian children attend secular schools or use secular curriculum 
and imbibe secular culture. Now, we're not relying on the pre-Christian Greeks for an educational model here. We're not relying on the post-Christian secularists for the education model either. Our curriculum is based in a biblical worldview. We put hundreds of Bible verses in the history books and integrate the truths into the subjects. We want to glorify God on every page of the science books. We immediately integrate knowledge into life application and natural revelation with special revelation. We keep Christ at the very center of the history books with preparing the world for Jesus and taking the world for Jesus. I believe God is calling this generation in this highly secularized age to a radical change in how they disciple their children. Please check out our program for education of your children and grandchildren at www.generations.org. And we are back on Generations. Kevin Swanson with you. And Steve, you know, as we consider the state of our nations, and we're concerned, and we don't want to despair. And we don't want to leave our listening audience on a negative point. Uh, we need to realize that the opportunities to repent and to revive have been presented many times and experienced many times by various nations, especially in the Western world. And I've spent the last, well, two months working through the great revivals and the powerful work of the Spirit of God and the establishment of the Church of Jesus Christ around the world. And it's been perhaps the most encouraging study of my life. And so I, I think we need to come back to this lesson that what our nations need more than anything else is a conversion to Jesus Christ. And it's not too late Amen. for revivals. It's not too late for a revival. And I don't think it'll be too late for a revival all the way to the end. And certainly, as we see the development of the church through the ages, we have seen a return of Holy Spirit power and spiritual revivals to various countries around the world over and over again. Now, the evangelical revivals of the 1700s, early 1800s, actually set back the destruction of England, as I see it, and gave impetus to the missionary movement of the 1800s. And a delay of the secularization of Scotland and England. So there's a value to the great evangelical awakenings of the 1700s and 1800s. Now, the humanist enlightenment was a negative, yes. And yes, we are feeling the repercussions of the humanist enlightenment. This is why the universities, this is why the secularization of America, this is the breakdown of faith, this is the breakdown of Christian culture. I get it. The humanist enlightenment provided the intellectual and spiritual force for breaking up the effects of the Protestant Reformation in Europe and America. Instead of relying upon the Word of God to identify a basis for truth and knowledge, man attempted to explain the world using his own philosophy and science. In his mind, the enlightened man of the 18th century had finally achieved the high intellectual capacity to achieve knowledge apart from God. And this pride would do much to destroy the Christian seminaries and universities and Christian culture and much of the Christian church in the West. For this reason, the moral and spiritual effects of the Protestant Reformation in Europe was very much curtailed. Extremely high percentages of children were born to unmarried mothers, and the problem was most severe in Catholic and Lutheran Germany. Britain's illegitimacy rate also increased from 1.8% in 1700 to 5% in 1790. 
This resulted in a great need for orphanages, the first of which was provided by Franck in Holly, Germany in 1698. George Mueller copied the Franck model, brought it into England in the 19th century. By the 1820s, the universities and seminaries had done their damage in Scotland and England. The Enlightenment had fairly well infiltrated the Church of Scotland. Ian Murray explained the condition of the Scottish Church at the time. The moderates preached morality with almost nothing of the supernaturalism of true Christianity. They ignored the fall of man, sneered at the idea of a new birth, and said nothing of the perfection and power of the work of the Son of God. Preacher and missionary Alexander Duff wrote of the situation, the savor and unction of divine grace was gone. The peculiarities of the gospel were despised as offensive to the classic taste and culture. Devotion, scorn is fanatical and contemptible. No less than the Catholics, Protestant civilization was often enamored with the proud learning of the Greeks, the mind and works of man over that of living God. Well, the first revival started in the University of St. Andrews. Thomas Chalmers matriculated at the University of St. Andrews at 12 years of age where he quickly abandoned the beliefs of his godly father for the newfangled ideas of modern academia. There's a story repeated a million times between the 18th and 21st centuries for many a child apostatized from his parents' faith through the influence of progressive seminaries and universities. About the year of 1808, Chalmers took a break from his pitiful apostate ministry in the church after he witnessed the death of his sister and his uncle. He nearly died of illness himself, but by God's mercy, the man was arrested from his spiritual malaise and became a mighty pulpit reformer in Scotland thereafter. In his readings, he turned with great interest to the writings of Jonathan Edwards, John Owen, John Calvin, John Newton, the scriptures, of course, which he began to read and memorize with an intensity which astonished those who had known his former interests. As others had in time past, Chalmers recovered the foundational doctrines of the centrality and sovereignty of God, the work of God and salvation, the absolute authority of Scripture. He reintroduced the Puritan writers to his classes at the University of St. Andrews, which he offered as a professorship of divinity in 1827. Above all, he taught his ministerial students to preach the word, visit their congregants, engage in evangelistic outreach. Chalmers released into the world students aflame with a passion to preach the gospel to every creature. Murray, Ian Murray, summarizes the work of the seminary revival. Few professors of divinity have had such students that crowded Chalmers' classroom in the 1830s. Many of them, as their subsequent biographies reveal, were to become men of outstanding usefulness. By 1843, Chalmers was able to say that he could travel from one end of Scotland to the other and spend each night in the manse of one of his former pupils. His students included such luminaries as Robert Murray Machane, Andrew Bonar, Horatius Bonar, George Smeaton and James Hamilton, as well as the famous St. Andrew's Seven, whose missionary zeal inspired another wave of worldwide gospel impact. Between 1839 and 1843, revivals broke out in Kilseth and Perth under the ministry of Robert Machane, William Burns, and John Milne. The story begins in Scotland, a nation peculiarly chosen by God for 19th century mission work in Asia and Africa. William Burns, radically converted at 16 years of age. Learned about missions at Glasgow University and committed his life to missions. But before pounding down the bars of iron and gates of brass in China, the Lord had something else in mind for the young man. In the spring of 1839, the 24-year-old William Burns was given Robert Murray Machane's pulpit in Dundee, Scotland for a season. Several months later, on a Tuesday morning in August, William Burns was in the nearby city of Kilsyth. He stepped out into the center of town to preach. 
A great multitude collected about his makeshift pulpit. Later, he described the scene. When I entered the pulpit, I saw before me an immense multitude from the town and neighborhood filling the seats, stairs, passages, porches, all in their ordinary clothes, including many of the most abandoned of our population. He preached for five hours as the people listened with the most riveted and solemn attention. The response could hardly be paralleled in any other period of revival in Scotland's history. The weeping and wailing, the tears, the groans. Some were screaming out in agony. Others, and among these strong men, fell to the ground as if they were dead. Over the next two years, revival swept across Scotland. Wherever William Burns preached, every day the Holy Spirit endowed this man of God to preach to crowds from 1,000 to 10,000 for four to nine hours at a time. In Aberdeen, Burns spoke to 2,500 men, and not one man left the meeting during three and a half hours of preaching. He moved on to the city of Newcastle, commonly referred to as the Iron-Walled Citadel of Satan. Though denounced by the newspapers and pelted by manure and stones during his sermons, he continued to preach day after day, preaching four hours at a time. Not many days hence, the Spirit of God did His work there. The hard hearts were shattered to pieces, and the city was transformed. Sundays, the evangelist would preach for nine hours, both indoors and outdoors. The word was sharper than any two-edged sword. The church was overflowing. Commenting on his brother's preaching and its reception in Scotland, Islay Burns described the scene. I can think of no better description than the account of the day of Pentecost, of which both in its immediate features and in its after results and everything except the miraculous gift of tongues, it seems to me to have been an exact counterpart. His brother further remarks that the preaching came with a power unsurpassed even by that of Mr. Spurgeon, withal fired with an ardor so intense and energy so exhaustless that nothing could damp or resist it. Mr. Burns wielded an influence over the masses whom he addressed, which was almost without parallel since the days of Wesley and Whitfield. As always intended by the outpouring of these gifts, every Pentecost naturally plays out in a wider dispersion of the word of truth to reach more of the highways and byways all the way to the uttermost parts of the earth. Beginning in the winter of 1843, Burns moved his evangelistic preaching to Ireland and Canada, but then in keeping with his original commitment, William Burns set his eyes on missions and the English Presbyterian Church commissioned him in 1847 to take the gospel message to China where he would spend the rest of his life serving Jesus. And that is the beginning of an explosive missionary movement that takes the Far East and Africa by storm for the next 60 years. And the point I want to make, Steve, is that this can happen again. Yes. And that's the point of reading God can do anything. God that's can right. do anything. And a lot of times it's when he allows the darkness to do its worst, and then he brings in the light. Yeah. And and everything changes, and all the glory you, you goes to him. Look at Noah. You look at Noah. You've got eight people left. Everybody else is, you know, they they are massive sinners. They are not looking to God. You've got Noah and his wife, three sons and their wives. Eight people left. Destroys the world. New things happen because of that. It God can do anything, and that's why I'm I'm optimistic. Yeah, because. My hope is in the Lord. My hope is not in me. It's not in anybody else. My hope is in Christ. My hope is in him. And with that hope, I have the power that I need through him to live through today. I can do all things through Christ, who is my strength. And that that's why I have hope. And we know it's going to turn out well. We know he's got a kingdom. He's got a church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. He is over all Amen. things to the church. And he has brought about an amazing development of his kingdom, of this church. 30% of this world's population acknowledges Jesus to this day. It's the largest faith in the world, at least uh, by f the count of adherents. And 
it's not over yet. This is not over yet. Take my word for it, my friends. This isn't over yet. He is in the process of discipling the nations, and the project is ongoing. And these revivals have happened over and over again, and I've spent the last number of months working on the second edition of a book called Taking the World for Jesus. I'm doubling the size of the book, and I'm finding more stories like this all over the world. Jesus is taking the world, yes. And he's doing it by the power of the Holy Spirit, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. And it's happening. Take my word for it, friends. It's happening. That wraps up this edition of the Generations Broadcast. Hope you've been encouraged by this historical view of what God is doing, what Jesus is doing to build his church around the world. This is Kevin Swanson and Steve Vaughn inviting you back again next time as we continue to lay down a vision for the next generation. 